15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, once again, thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and with me, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? Oh, good. Um, I must confess, yeah. the last few days I've uh, found myself getting a bit stir-crazy, uh, being stuck at home and only going out when absolutely necessary, which is the directive of our government. But um, it's it's a it takes a bit of getting used to. I suppose uh, the first week or two it's a novelty, and then you start to realise it's it's not going to go away. It's in for the long haul. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. here we are. But uh, yeah. it, 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 uh, it's a strange thing. I must say I am doing a lot of reading a lot of reading about COVID-19 and learning as much as I can. I, I find it intriguing. I know that probably sounds a bit morbid, but I just have this thirst for that kind of knowledge. So I've been um, been really getting stuck into it and learning as much as I can. It's fascinating. Mm. And uh, there's something else today, Fred, that we need to just briefly mention in passing. It's the 15th of April today, the day we're recording this podcast, and that is the release date of one Tyrannian Enigma. Hey, well it's, done. It's out. It's yeah. out there. <laughs> out there. Yeah, wow. that's right. I forgot it was today. Um, well, well done. Congratulations. I, um, I, I, I did listen out for it on the media this morning, uh, but... Uh... Funnily enough, <laughs> I'm going to have to sack my media manager. <laughs> No, he, it's, he um, sucks. He's really not good at his job. Well, yes, <laughs> he could be one of the same person. I think he wants more money. Oh well, don't we all? Yeah, <laughs> we do. Anyway, that aside, um, but there are links to uh, the um, sales page on the Space Nuts website if you'd like to have a look. Uh, today, Fred, we're going to talk about uh, the Event Horizon Telescope. Um, we we spoke about it previously when it imaged a black hole for the first time in history. I say image versus photograph because it didn't actually take a photo. It took an, it developed an image, I think is the way to, to put it. But now we're going back there because uh, it's also providing us with a, a bit more data, this, this time in regard to a quasar. And I love this story. This is cute. Uh, we've talked about uh, the, the next mission to Mars and the naming of the rover Perseverance. Well, Perseverance is going to have a fascinating passenger, uh, which I, I imagine has also created all sorts of uh, issues in terms of how do we make this thing work properly in an environment like Mars compared to doing the same thing on Earth. So we'll talk about that. And uh, Peter has uh, sent us a question about Earth's water. Uh, in one breath, he asks where it comes from, but he also has um, sort of sideline questions in regard to Earth's water. And Lance, uh, I, I like this. This is a philosophical question, I think we could say, Fred. Lance wants to know how the discovery of intelligent life would impact on humanity. And I, I love his little uh, example. If we found out on Sunday that there is intelligent life beyond Earth, would I have to go to work on Monday? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So we'll, uh... well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. <laughs> we can get to that at the t uh, in, in due course. Um, we'll get to that. 
One one minor point, Lance. Uh, they still haven't found intelligent life on Earth yet. So <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll get to those. But uh, let's let's uh, talk about Event Horizon and uh, of course the infamous, or not infamous, the famous moment of the imaging of a black hole, which uh, looked like exactly what we thought it would—a donut. Um, now uh, it's focusing quite literally on quasars or a quasar. What's the story? We better find out what a quasar is first, Fred, just for the people we, sitting opposite we you. We will. <clears throat> we'll. All right. Yeah. Let's let's do that. I was going to talk about the um, the observations, but let's talk about the quasars because they they have sort of um, uh, that's been something that's uh, kind of developed our theory and our understanding of what quasars are has developed throughout pretty well the whole of my career because when I started off, it was when the first observations of quasars were being made. Nobody knew what they were. The word is a contraction. It, it is from quasi-stellar radio source. Oh. Uh, that's where the word comes from. And why is it quasi-stellar? Because uh, it it looks like a point of point of light. It, in other words, it, it doesn't have any, uh, you know, you can't see any form to it, no galaxy or anything. It's just a point of light. Uh, and we really didn't know what these things were um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, it turned out that they are very energetic. There is uh, there is something about the way they beam their radiation, and I can explain it um, in this way. Um, it, it, they vary in the intensity of the radiation that comes out, but they vary on a scale of hours. And that tells you that whatever the source is is very compact because uh, otherwise that would be blurred out by the fact that the light would take longer to get from one side of it to the other if it's a big object. So variability on a short time scale tells you it's compact, and that was one of the first things that was discovered. Uh, and contrast that with the fact that by then we knew that they were at huge distances, what we would call cosmological distances, billions of light years away. And the, the, the uh, you know, you do the sum and what you discover is that this these things are incredibly energetic. And for a long time, people had no idea where that energy came from. Now we know it comes about because these are quasars are in the centers of galaxies and they are uh, uh, basically to do with the supermassive black hole mm. at the center of the galaxy. <clears throat> and. Um, so uh, what you've got to think about quasars, but basically quasars are extinct today. There aren't any. Oh. <laughs> so all the ones we see are, are looking back in time. That's right. And it goes back to a time when there was much more gas and dust and debris lurking in the centres of these galaxies. So there was plenty of stuff for the black hole to feed on. Um, and the swirling accretion disk uh, around the black hole, um, as we now understand, Yes, that uh, is driven to a frenzy of energy by the gravitational pull of the black hole. But what then happens is that the magnetic field of the black hole essentially focuses that material up its north and south pole. If you think of the equator as being where the accretion disk is, mm. the north and south pole is where this stuff is squirted out. So we know that quasars emit jets of material, uh, which is... Uh, highly radiative, it, it sends out radio signals uh, and is moving at nearly the speed of light. It's a, a, incredible stuff. The, the story itself of the quasars is a wonderful story. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell it again. That's okay. I'm and, just a bit yeah. sad that they're extinct. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. You should be glad. If we had a quasar in the middle of our galaxy, we'd, be, we'd all be curtains straight away. Oh, they're that powerful. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. They're, 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 they're big-time stuff. So um, here's, here's the, the, the up-to-date story. Um, and we didn't know this when the news was announced back in, I think it was about this time last year, a bit earlier, January 2019, I think mm -hmm. it was of the uh, first observation of a black hole event horizon uh, in the galaxy M87 by the event horizon telescope. What's the event horizon telescope? It's an array of, I think it's eight uh, radio observatories on one hemisphere of the Earth. Sadly, the hemisphere they chose was not the one that includes all the Australian radio telescopes. So whilst uh, radio astronomers were involved with, uh, Australian radio astronomers were involved with this, they weren't um, playing an immediate uh, role in terms of the observation. So, the Event Horizon Telescope observed M87, uh, released this astonishing picture of the uh, black hole Event Horizon, which we talked about uh, ad infinitum, as, as, as did the rest of the world's media. Great yep. story. And now that we've mentioned uh, a black hole, we'll get 10 questions about them. Yeah, that's, that's all right. We can do it. We can <laughs> handle that. Um, <laughs> we just send them to somebody else. That's uh, right. <laughs> um, so what we now know, however, is that uh, other observations were made during that observing run back in 2017 when they collected the M87 data. Uh, and, in fact, we, we suspect that they observed... Uh, in fact, we know that they observed the supermassive black hole in the centre of our own galaxy, the object which we call Sagittarius A star. Um, but we haven't seen a release of that yet. But what has now happened is um, some information on this quasar, which rejoices in the name of 3C279. That means it was discovered very early in the history of quasar. 3C is the third Cambridge catalogue of radio sources. It goes back, I think, to the 60s. Um, so it's number 279 in that. Uh, so a, a, a bright emitter of radio radiation. And it turns out that 3C279, throughout all the, the time, the, you know, the 50-odd years that it's been observed, has been very violently variable. Its intensity has gone up and down uh, in, a, in a big way. And sometimes it's very bright, sometimes it's not. And that's across the whole spectrum, Andrew. It's radio waves, x-rays, uh, visible light, the whole, the whole gig. Mm. Um, so it turns out, though, that the event horizon telescope people used it as a calibrator. They used this object because it's a known source of radio waves and it's a quasar, which means it's effectively very, very compact. They used it to calibrate uh, the, their event horizon telescope, bringing together observations from these uh, telescopes all over the one hemisphere of the Earth. And um, so using those calibration observations, people have now um, basically seen things in it. They've learned things from it. And what we've learned is that there is jets of material, as, as expected, because that's why it's such a strong emitter, squirting out of the poles of, uh, of uh, 3C279. Uh, and uh, that those jets have been analysed by the Event Horizon Telescope. We can see that they basically uh, form blobs which is kind of what you'd expect these uh, because it's varying so much in its intensity that corresponds with blobs of stuff being shot out from the poles of the of the quasar 
uh, by the magnetic fields of the black hole. And these have now been imaged in incredible detail uh, at multiple wavelengths. So we've got some images uh, which are, have been released on the web. I, I encourage uh, Space Nuts listeners to go and find them. It's uh, pretty easy to find. Um, and they're blobs of material, and you can kind of tell from them that they, it's probably coming out in a sort of wavy pattern. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, that is almost certainly because of what we call precession. It's the, the thing uh, wobbling on its axis slightly. Um, it, it looks as though there is a rotating jet, uh, basically, um, that, that is, is coming out shaped by these magnetic shock waves. Mm. So um, really fantastic stuff, a lovely spin-off from, uh, uh, from the Event Horizon Telescope. Uh, the paper, I think, will be published very soon in Astronomy and Astrophysics, one of the leading, leading journals. Uh, and I think the, um, the lead author is at the Max, Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy, which is in Heidelberg, if I remember rightly. It's in Germany. Uh, and they did the work on this uh, study. They were, I, I think, actually, they operate a radio telescope, which was one of the EHT telescopes, the Event Horizon telescopes. So it's natural that it should be, the authors should be coming from there. Mm. Great story. Yes, indeed. Very, very good story. And I, I suppose we'll just keep learning from the Event Horizon telescope, will we? Um, I, I, I'm sure there'll be more coming from it. Whether I, I mean, I think what they did back in 2017, they had a major observing campaign. We're not really sure what they observed. <laughs> uh, we know they did the M87. We know they did 3C279 now. Uh, and we're pretty sure that they did uh, Sagittarius A star. There might be other things as well that come out. So um, the key thing about this, just to close the loop here, Andrew, is that uh, having a radio telescope the size of the Earth, effectively, which is what it's synthesising, gives you very fine detail resolution. That's the, that's the crux of it. In fact, their minimum resolution is 20 micro arc seconds, uh, 20 millionth of an arc second. An arc second is one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. Um, it's the, it, it would, you know, if you had a 20 micro arc second resolving telescope uh, here in Sydney, we built a read newsprint in Perth with it. Wow. Um, and likewise, the same in the United States. If you, you, know, you had one in Washington, you'd probably be able to read newsprint in Los Angeles or something like yes. that. It's that kind of scale. Wow, that's amazing. Mm. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? It is yeah. very impressive. I love their logo too. I know we yeah, talk about logos right. from time to time, but it looks like a telescope, but it also looks like the Earth. Looks like the Earth. It's like, yes, it's very, very neat. Clever. Very neat. Mm. Yeah. Okay, you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a break from the show and hear a word or two from our sponsor, Grammarly. Now, I have to say I'm a big fan of Grammarly uh, because I've been using it for a few years now. Very helpful for authors, but uh, also really good for everyday life. They've saved me on a few occasions. Uh, particularly with spelling, but also with a few issues that uh, didn't quite make sense. Uh, it's built by linguists and language lovers, and uh, Grammarly's writing app finds and corrects hundreds of complex writing errors, so you don't have to do it yourself, word by word, day by day. <laughs> you can uh, easily copy and paste any English text into Grammarly's online text editor, or just install uh, Grammarly's free browser extension for Chrome, Safari, Firefox and quite a few others. Grammarly's algorithms flag potential issues in the text and suggest context-specific corrections for grammar, spelling and vocabulary. 
Uh, Grammarly explains the reasoning behind each correction so you can make an informed decision about whether and how to correct an issue. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anything else you write on the web. Uh, for you, the listener of Space Nuts, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. So if you'd like to download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash space nuts. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash space nuts to download Grammarly for free and let them know you came from us. Uh, I'll include the link in the show notes as well. And now back to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. Now, as you know, we have a Patreon page because uh, we were asked uh, more than a few times by audience members how they can support Space Nuts. And so we created the Patreon Space Nuts page so that you could take advantage of that opportunity. And by coming on board as a patron, uh, we'll give you access to the commercial free version of the show. You'll get the occasional shout out. I think we've actually been doing that every week. Uh, you'll be able to access uh, merchandise giveaways ultimately and there um, uh, is bonus material that we uh, we throw in. So if a patron asks the question, the patrons themselves get the answer on the Patreon page. So if you would like to become a patron, we're on the march to 500 patrons. You can do that at patreon.com slash space nuts. You can set your own figure. It is not mandatory. We do not expect you to do this. It is purely voluntary. And those of you who have chosen to do so are um, forever in our debt or we're forever in yours. Or, I don't know. But a, a thank you is what I'm trying to say. Now, Fred, <laughs> let's go to my happy place. Let's go to Mars. This yes. love, this story, um, I, I talked about this on the radio yesterday uh, because it, obviously the headline caught me um, and I was very excited to hear this. And I know we've talked about the uh, Perseverance rover when it got named by, I think it was a 14-year-old school student in the United States. Um, now the rover is going to carry um, a little buddy to the surface <laughs> yeah, of Mars. Right. And, and this thing won't be a rover. This will be something else. Indeed, the first extraterrestrial helicopter. First helicopter to fly on another world. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, it is. It's it's fantastic, isn't it? It's great stuff. Uh, why is this in the news? Uh, just to put it into context, um, I think about a week ago, uh, the helicopter was uh, actually attached to Perseverance, uh, which is currently under final preparations at uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Mm. Um, the the helicopter slightly counterintuitively. <laughs> is carried on the underneath of the rover. Oh, um, really? Yeah. <laughs> that seems at odds with what you need to do to launch a helicopter. One, <laughs> um, I'm assuming that what they, to deploy, it's probably the, you know, it's the best way, really, when you think about it. Um, it well, it's on the underneath of the rover. When it's deployed, it'll be, be deployed under the rover, which will then move away so that the helicopter is essentially ready ready for flight. I can see a potential problem here already. Uh, no. What if well, they put it on a rock and it falls over? Yeah, or, yeah, that's right. And there's a, there's a wire dangling down that just yeah. drags the helicopter or around it, with it a rope. It runs over a rotor. 
I think it works better. Well, look, these no, I'm guys... I'm sure they've covered all that. They're pretty cluey. <laughs> so at the moment, it's, it's, uh, it is uh, underneath with its, ro- its rotors sort of stowed. Um, just to give you an idea of what it's like, um, it's kind of about the size and shape of a ceiling fan. Oh, uh, OK. And I could see one right over your head. Yeah, I've got one in this room for yeah. hot summer nights. So it's got um, two rotor blades, but they rotate in opposite directions. Unlike a ceiling fan, um, they, the rotors actually turn in opposite directions. Of course, that is so there's no residual torque on the helicopter, so that the helicopter itself stays put. Um, <clears throat> it's the, the dual rotor form of helicopter rather than a, a tail rotor, which would uh, counteract the rotation of torque, torque uh, canceller. Yeah. Um, as most of the helicopters, I suppose that means it can be more compact as well. You don't have to have these exactly. extra bits sticking out all over the place. Yeah, indeed, that's exactly right. Um, but it, it's just a lovely piece of kit. Um, mm. Of course, the key here, Andrew, and this is the question on your lips, I'm sure, is how do you make a helicopter work uh, in atmospheric pressure that's about 1% of what we have here on Earth? Exactly what I was going to say, because <laughs> and, and, and I, I was talking about it uh, yesterday on air and saying how can they test it when our conditions are so very, very different? So you, you couldn't test it on Earth because it wouldn't do here what it will do there. So yeah. how, how did this sort of get sorted out? So, um, well, you can do half of it. I mean, the two big problems are, first of all, reduced atmospheric pressure, but have also reduced gravity, which, of course, helps you um, counteract the reduced atmospheric pressure. Mm. So you can, you can deal with one of those because you can t- test it out in a huge vacuum chamber, pump it down to the pressure on Mars, and fly your helicopter around, and that's been done to death, I think. They've done many tests. What, you, what you're doing, though, there is testing in Earth gravity, uh, and uh, Mars gravity is about a third of the gravity on Earth, so that all has to be built into the calculations as well. Uh, but I think the, uh, you know, the owners and operators of the, um, the, the helicopter uh, are very confident that this is going to work a treat. Um, actually, I don't think it's got a name yet. Um, I, I don't know whether it's got, you know, I'm sure it will end up with a name. It'll have to because it'll be tweeting like all these spacecraft. Well, maybe they'll have another competition to see if someone can come up with yeah, a name. It's, um, maybe not. Or maybe Perseverance B or something like that, which oh, is a slightly... That's, that's pretty ordinary. Sorry. Yeah, that's, it's pretty unfortunate, yeah. That's why astronomers uh, should never name anything. <laughs> yeah, we, no, our name would be Perseverance one two twelve seventy six plus nine, <laughs> probably. Mm. Um, anyway, it's uh, it's uh, it's been assembled with the spacecraft. Uh, we look forward to seeing it again on Mars. Um, just a, a word though about what it will do. It's not. That's my next uh, question. Yeah. It's why am not, I here? <laughs> why am I? Why is it there? That's right. Now, why am I and, here? Because you keep asking the questions. <laughs> Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> you're there because you're the anchor man, Andrew. Right. Without you, this would not fly. Neither yeah. would the helicopter. Well, if I'm an anchor man, it won't fly, will it? <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure which one of us is the straight man, but that's all right. That'll do. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. All right. <laughs> um, okay, so it is flying. Uh, 
in advance of the rover. That's that's why it's there. It's it's not there to particularly to take data. It will have sensors on board, of course, and yeah. cameras, transmitters, all the rest of it. I'm not sure how it's powered, Andrew. Um, I'm going to get where, battery, or uh, sol- yeah, maybe solar chargeable batteries. Although that, they'd be heavy, wouldn't they? There may be solar panels on the rotors. I mm. think. Uh, but I've got a feeling it, it. I'm not sure about this. I remember re- thinking back now a year ago when this was first talked about um, whether it might be, or maybe one of the schemes was that it would come back to the, you know, to the to the mothership, the, the rover itself, and get a recharge. That means it's got a, you know, it's got got to somehow land in such a way that it can actually pick up electricity from that. That can be done, as we know, by induction, uh, so it might not need to plug anything in. Uh, I'm not sure of the details of that, but I will find out. Uh, but uh, looking at the pictures, I suspect it does have solar panels on uh, on the part of the rotor tops. Um, it is, uh, as uh, its whole purpose is to be able to fly over ridges, to fly over hills, just to have a look at what's ahead uh, in, so that the uh, mission controllers operating the rover uh, can actually work out the best sites to go, perhaps the, the easiest route to get them to a different part of the surface of Mars, perhaps spotting interesting-looking rocks and things of that sort, remembering that Perseverance, its whole raison d'etre, the reason for this mission is in order to find out whether Mars ever had life. That's yes. the, you know, that's the the underlying theme, and it's the first spacecraft really that we've sent to do that. Um, at least in the modern era, it is. A couple of early uh, things had that in mind, but didn't quite get there. Mm. Um, the uh, so unlike Curiosity, which is to, was to find out whether Mars was ever habitable, and did very quickly. Uh, Perseverance is there to find out whether Mars was ever inhabited. Mm. And uh, we all hope it will be as quick as well. Um, but, you know, the the, the, um, the helicopter is going to help in this process because the uh, having a, an overhead view, I, I can't remember how high it flies. It's a couple of hundred metres or something like that, I think. I mean, it's, a, it's not a small object. It weighs, uh, if I remember rightly, 1.8 kilograms. It's a fairly hefty piece of kit. Uh, to, to to fly around um, uh, fly around Mars, mm. uh, and so its uh, its job is is well you know it's well uh, defined. It will, we hope, hunt out <clears throat> likely looking places to find fossil remnants of, of creatures that may have uh, existed on Mars. Yes. Now we're talking a launch in is it July with a yeah, I think potential July landing is... in early 2021. Yeah, I th- if I remember rightly, it was the 18th of February, the landing day. I can't remember, um, but I think it's about then. But the launch is um, is planned for uh, uh, July or August this year, and I'm sure that will uh, that will go ahead. The, there's a three week window. Because, of course, with Mars, what you've got to do, if you're sending things to Mars, you've got to wait till the Earth and Mars are in exactly the right relative position. Yeah. You can't just set off any time. Uh, the Windows, um, three weeks, opens up on July the 17th uh, this year. So I'm that's... looking at a close-up photograph of the helicopter, and, yes, yeah. it's got the two rotors, which yep. spin in opposing directions, but above that it looks like a solar panel. Yeah. Could I be a solar panel. That sounds about right. Mm. So uh, um, it, that would explain that. Yeah, um, the, the, there is another 
another interesting aspect, and this might be another reason why it's sitting underneath the uh, the, the the rover Perseverance. Um, I think it's two and a half months after Perseverance touches down that they will deploy the helicopter. Yeah. Also, so, it's going to be fine. Got... They don't want it to get covered in dust or. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know um, whether they'd dump it somewhere and then come mm. back to it or carry it around for two and a half months. I mean, um, Perseverance itself will probably have a very limited set of excursions during that time because everything has to be checked out. Uh, and indeed, the, the helicopter itself has got a 30-day test campaign as well that's uh, down the track. So oh, it's really it's great stuff, Andrew, and um, I look forward to you and I talking about it next oh, year yes. when all this happens. Yeah, I can't so wait. Can't deployment wait. In, in May 2021, they yep. expect and the... And the landing date is February 18th. And, yep. um, yeah, and, and we've got to remember, this rover is not small. It's about the size of a car, from what I think. Yes, heard. it is. Yeah, the rover itself. Um, yeah, it's carrying, a, carrying a bit of a helicopter under there is probably not that big a deal. And, uh, yeah, with all this uh, technology, um, I've just found out how they're going to attach the helicopter to the under, uh, underside of the rover. It's going to be... They're going to use blue tack. <laughs> Um, I, I actually thought they were going to nail it on just to make sure it didn't fall off. <laughs> Use those rust-free rivets. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's no rust on... Well, there is... The whole of Mars is rusty, actually. That's yeah, why it's is, isn't it? <laughs> no rust on Mars. Yeah. All right. Anyway, great stuff. This is and a we story wish... we will definitely be pursuing. We will. And we wish the mission well. We, we yep. hope everybody's keeps safe who's working on the rover and uh, yeah, I suppose we could all we should also say that they're doing well considering that a lot of NASA projects have had to be hauled back yeah. and slowed down yeah. due to uh, exactly. COVID-19 so um, yeah they're, they're going to get on with this one and they're just about ready just doing some tweaking so we'll keep an eye on that mm. one Fred indeed you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast, episode 198, with Andrew Dunkley oh. and Fred Watson. And boy, are we tired. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, big hello to all our social media follow followers. Uh, that includes our YouTubers. We've got 1,200 YouTube followers now which is uh, fantastic. That's a, that's a great number. And I, I imagine, given those sorts of numbers, there are a lot of people following us on YouTube that don't follow us on Facebook because the number uh, variations are quite significant. So um, we've got some new followers on the YouTube channel. So Space Nuts uh, on YouTube is youtube.com slash C slash Space Nuts if you want to become a YouTube follower of the podcast. Or you can stick to standard social media and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and you can also join the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. That's a group that uh, was the idea of uh, a listener and sort of went from strength to strength and that's where you as a Space Nuts follower can also engage with other Space Nuts followers. Uh, we all call ourselves nutters, I think. Uh, so uh, if you would like to um, partake in that, uh, you're more than welcome to do so uh, and, and enjoy the company of uh, like-minded people. Now, Fred, uh, we've got some questions to deal with. Love this one from Peter uh, Hindwood. Uh, he says, Hi, Fred and Andrew. I was wondering if you could explain how Earth received all its water. Where did it come from and when did it arrive? Uh, it was a, uh, a freight shipment. Uh, 
and um, they put it in the wrong place and we didn't find it for millions of years. Uh, also, in my imagination, uh, what would have happened if Earth had received uh, so much water that there was no dry land and was truly a giant water planet? Would it have stayed in its current orbit? Best regards, Peter Hindwood. Hindwood? Hindwood, I'm going with. Uh, good question, Peter. Love the second part of that question. We have actually, Fred, talked about how Earth received all its water before, but I think we can revisit that. Uh, yeah, and asteroids it, and the like. Yeah, mainly though, it, it is still to some extent an open question, Andrew. Um, <clears throat> that there's, um, there's, there are differing bodies of opinion. Uh, the, the, I guess, what is still the foremost theory is that in the early history of the Earth, uh, when the solar system was wild and woolly, with everything colliding with everything else, uh, there were uh, influxes of comets from the outer solar system, um, which basically collided with Earth. Now, we know that comets have collided with Earth in the past. Um, we think, actually, that the Tunguska object was probably a comet. May not have been, but probably. So what are comets? They're uh, basically uh, huge mountain-sized or mountain-range-sized bodies of ice, mostly ice, water ice, uh, with a lot of dust and stuff in 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 with them, uh, you know, sort of locked up in the ice. And that's why when comets get near the sun, uh, you get a dust tail and a plasma tail because of the, the fact that the ice uh, sublimes. It turns from solid into gas. Um, we think they all come from something called the Oort cloud, way, way out in the depths of the solar system, which is sort of the, the last vestiges of the cloud in which the solar system was formed. We, um, we, we think they come from there, but we ought to know, Fred. We ought to know, yeah. It's all right. I had to do it. Well, <laughs> we, let me put it this way. The evidence points to the fact that they come from there. How's that? Uh, um, there's always, all, there's always room for dad jokes. In yeah, so space all, all, all evidence is based. Well, that's right. In fact, the whole thing's a dad joke, really. <laughs> <laughs> or is it a dad joke? I don't Could know. Be yeah, good for both. Um, so, yes, comets have played a you know a role in the entire history of the solar system and perhaps the most popular theory says that the early earth was bombarded by comets coming from these region rich in water ice and um, it's possible to show that uh, they would have been able to deliver enough water to to you know fulfill the oceans of the earth the, the one of the problems with that is uh, the isotopic content of the water. It's a mix between heavy water and normal water. Heavy water's got uh, deuterium in it rather than normal hydrogen. And you and I had a conversation about this, I don't know, six months or so ago, because we got uh, stuck on the idea of whether you could drink heavy water and whether it would kill you. And indeed, we both did our bits of research and found that, yes, you could drink heavy water. And it, if you drink, drank it for long enough, it would kill you, yes. but, uh, but not immediately. Um, anyway, so, OK, the, the issue is that the comets that have so far been directly investigated by spacecraft, and there's, I don't know, it's three or four of them, I think, including Churyumov-Gerasimenko, the, the one that was visited by Rosetta a few years ago, they... Um, some of them, not all of them, seem to have a different isotopic content in their ice. In other words, the proportion of heavy water to normal water is different in comets from what it is here on Earth. And that 
um, has been raised as a possible showstopper for the idea that water came from the comets. But there are some other comets that have been uh, observed that actually have the same isotopic composition. Ah. So it may not be a showstopper. Uh, meanwhile, some other scientists have suggested that the water that is now in the oceans basically arrived locked up in the in the in the original dust clouds that that the earth was formed from so it was you know it's it's like hydrated dust particles and that's where the water comes from it's a lot harder to get your head around that how that then turned into liquid water uh but um the, so just for peter the you know the origin of the earth's water is still an open question but it is a really interesting one and um uh, you know it fascinates planetary scientists and hopefully will eventually have a, a more solid answer than we have at the moment. Yes. Now, the second part of Peter's question is... Well, this is equally, the fun part. Yeah, it's the fun part. What if there was no dry land and the Earth was a water planet? Would it have stayed in its current orbit? And the answer is, yes, it did, because it probably was ah. once a water planet. Um, <clears throat> there is uh, evidence, there's um, a few stories, if you look back you know, on the web, <clears throat> a number of different studies have arrived at this idea. The most recent one I found uh, came out uh, actually very recently, in fact, um, only this year. Uh, this is um, some work that comes from rocks here in Australia, actually. Um, it's published. Oh, there's, no, there's no water here for it. <laughs> no, the no. driest continent, the driest continent with the, ev the evidence that once the earth was covered in water. Mm. Um, once again, it, it, these rocks are uh, in northwestern Australia. Uh, it's a slab of rock, uh, which was once ocean floor, and apparently it's now turned on its side. It's uh, in the uh, Panorama District, northwestern Australia's outback. Uh, and this rock is 3.2 billion years old. Remember, the Earth's 4.6 billion years old, so it's it's still dates from a time that's not back to the beginning. But there is evidence within that rock, and it's once again to do with isotope ratios. It's actually oxygen isotope ratios uh, that suggest that there were no continents. Uh, in other words, the Earth was basically covered in ocean. Um, so one of the scientists, this is work that's been done at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, and actually, there's one of the uh, collaborators is uh, Iowa State University. Uh, that's um, someone called Benjamin Johnson. Uh, he says, um, without continent, let me just, just backtrack a bit. They, they, they think that the, the reason why they think there were no continents is because the clays that were found on the what was the ocean floor have this particular characteristic that it absorbed the the uh, particular isotopes of oxygen. So what Benjamin Johnson says is, without continents above the ocean, the oxygen value will be distinct from today, which is exactly what we found, uh -huh. and it's different in a in a way that's most easily explained without land to get rained on and without soil formation. So uh, what they're saying is that the large scale continental, you know, the large scale continents that we see today weren't there, but they don't rule out the idea of microcontinents, little. You know, perhaps volcanoes poking up above the Little ocean surface. Towers. 
Yeah, and what and one of the one of the um, uh, Boswell Wing is the other uh, leader of this project. Yeah, he uh, says he, uh, I imagine a picture of like kind of like it what must look like to approach the Galapagos Islands from the west. Well, I've done that, so I know what it looks like. Vast expanses of ocean waters to the north and south, with small volcanic rocky islets barely poking above the ocean surface. Okay. So you've got this, you know, idea of a wet world with a few little things poking up through it. Uh, 3.2 billion years ago. So what changed really that created the continents? Was it just size? Well, the, the, the whole, you know, the, 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 the large-scale changes of the Earth's history uh, have included a snowball Earth when the Earth was completely frozen. Mm. And it's all about the way the atmosphere behaved. The orbit does have changes in it over geological time, but the orbit of the Earth is basically very stable. Uh, it's more, more the atmospheric conditions that change that cause these dramatic uh, differences. Uh, so so uh, that's really the last part of Peter's question. Would it have stayed in its current orbit? Yes. Um, changing the Earth to a water world doesn't really have much effect on the planet as a whole because we're only talking about the surface rather than uh, the interior. The interior has been... Pretty constant for 4.6 billion years. Mm, okay. There you go, Peter. Very good. Great question. Fun to try and crack that one. And we'll move on now to a question from Lance Herring. And he says, hello, Space Nuts. First off, thank you so much for your podcast. I truly enjoy it. Oh, there's one. Uh, quick question <laughs> for the two of you. What do you think the response from humanity will be to the announcement that finding life, uh, the announcement of finding life on another planet? Do you think the response would be different if we find intelligent life? And if so, how? And I mean, if we found out on Sunday that there is intelligent life beyond Earth, am I going to go to work on Monday? It's <laughs> a, a great question. Thank you, Lance. Yeah. It depends what they're doing, you know. If they're, um, I might just preempt you here, Fred, if you don't mind. But I think a lot of the reaction we would see, pointing to the second half of Lance's question, would be what was portrayed in the movie Contact. I think that that Jodie Foster film, where they did actually contact intelligent life beyond Earth, I think the way the world would react would be um, pretty close to that. Just the way uh, the world is reacting to COVID-19 was portrayed in um, the movie Contagion. <laughs> I think yeah. the, the world's reaction to such a discovery would um, be pretty close to what they did in, uh, in that film, Contact. Yeah, actually, I'd, I'd also put up uh, a, a vote for Arrival, um, which Oh, yes, was yes, which got very the... military, didn't it? Yeah, it did, but the the whole um, you know these were benign aliens in arrival, yeah. and uh, well, they, they came they arrived for and... us to help them, as it turned yeah. out. Yes, that's right. So, and um, you know the, the the whole point about was uh, it was uh, Amy Adams' character, uh, who was the linguist who uh, eventually interpreted what they were trying to say to us, mm. well, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so okay. Um, I think you know all those things are probably uh, they're probably good pointers. <clears throat> that the 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 answer basically uh, to the question what the response from humanity will be uh, is uh, that there 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 are protocols uh, which have been in place for about thirty years. Um, one of the scientists who worked on this is, is uh, Seth Shostak, who's uh, with the... Oh, I know uh, that name. 
Yeah, SETI Institute is well yes, known yes. in the SETI Institute. Uh, I, I had a chance to have a good chat with him. Uh, it's now, gosh, it's nearly 20 years ago, 2003, because uh, he was here for the um, the International Astronomical Union's uh, get-together in Sydney in 2003, and um, really interesting guy to talk to. He was he was um, really, you know, inspiring to, to, to speak with. So what he says is, there are some protocols, but I think that's an unfortunate name and makes them sound more important than they are. Uh, in the 1990s, he chaired a committee of the International Academy of Astronautics that prepared a revised version of the detection protocols uh, for researchers who watch for possible alien transmissions uh, in the field of SETI. That's uh, basically a quote, not from Seth, but from life science. Um, so the idea was uh, that the these protocols, the guidelines... As Sethi explains, uh, sorry, as Seth Shostak explains, <laughs> Seth Shostak Sethi. Uh, you've got to make sure you don't get those three words mixed up. Uh, he explains that they they were set up for governments and scientists rather than as a kind of action plan. That's mm. the way uh, he put it. And there's a quote from him here. They say that the, the protocols say if you pick up a signal, check it out, tell everybody. But don't broadcast any replies without international con consultation, whatever that means, he said. But that's all the protocols say, and they have no force of law. The United Nations took a copy of the early protocols and put them in a file drawer somewhere, and that's as official as they ever got. So um, it's really interesting that the, you know, the, I guess governments are thinking detection of any sort of SETI signal is so unlikely that we really have far too many other things to think about rather than the United Nations' response to yeah, what well, you should do. We have at the moment. Yes, yes exactly. So um, it's, it is a moot point about what would happen. I mean, um, certainly I remember um, people talking back in the 80s, oh, you, you can't, you know, if we find a signal, you simply cannot tell the public. Um, but that doesn't hold good in the 2020s because partly because we're all so interconnected mm. social media would have that out there oh for sure you know, no and time conspiracy theorists think we already have received signals they the do that's already right. been here and etc yeah. uh, I, I, I think we've already witnessed the world reaction to this in one respect when they found that rock with bacterial evidence on it, on it that they thought came from Mars. And um, Bill right. Clinton actually made a public announcement about he it. Did. So I, I think we've actually seen how people would react. <clears throat> he did. That's, that's two, yes. Uh, so we are talking about two different things here. That's, that's the existence of life beyond the Earth. Yes. Uh, rather than any intelligent, intelligent species. Yeah. So what Seth's talking about is very much the intelligent life. Now, turning to the other question, uh, which, of course, again, is, is part of Lance's, um, you know, Lance's question. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, that was the Alan Hills meteorite, uh, and Bill Clinton announced that, I think, on the eve of his re-election. Uh, I think it was on the eve of the poll. And so it was a <clears throat> not the best concealed plug. It was a for stunt. Him. It was a stunt, a mate. Stunt, yeah. 
Um, what it, what's that about? That is about a meteorite that was found in Antarctica in, I think, 1980. Uh, it contains structures within it which look at first sight like microbial structures, except they're a thousand times smaller than most microbes. They're very, very small. Uh, and uh, whilst they look like microbes, there's nothing else about them that suggests that they are. So the criticisms that were thrown at the Allen Hills meteorite uh, the people who believed that they'd seen evidence of Martian life there. Uh, one was uh, that these things could have been geologically caused, and that actually is the current view, that they're ge from geological processes rather than life processes, or that whatever these things are, they could have been picked up during however long it was on Earth. I mean, I think uh, this spacecraft... Uh, sorry, this not spacecraft, this meteorite probably s sat in Antarctica for quite a long time uh, before it was found. And so there could have been some sort of microbial contamination, although in Antarctica that's um, less likely than it would be elsewhere on Earth. Um, how do we know it came from Mars? There are, there's a whole suite of... I it think was rusty. About 200. <laughs> yeah, 200 meteorites, almost like that, that we know came from Mars, and about a similar number that we know came from the Moon. Uh, the Mars ones are identified because we have samples of the Martian atmosphere, which were made back in the Viking days, actually, uh, which tell us that um, the atmosphere of Mars has certain constituents which are present in these in these meteorites. So Alan Hill's meteorite, definitely from Mars, but probably not containing life. But exactly as you've said, um, we do have a picture of what the reaction would have been. And it hasn't, actually wasn't that... You know, it wasn't that overwhelming. No, it wasn't. No, we sort of took it in our stride. And I reckon that's what yeah. would happen again, because we're kind of reaching a point where we're expecting this to happen now. We, we're certainly expecting microbial life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who knows what might come back from perseverance within the next few years. Mm. Uh, and that is set up to measure life on, or to detect life on Mars. So um, I think it's more likely to detect past life on Mars, but you never know, could find a few extremophiles under the surface there. So sadly, Lance, regardless of what kind of life there is, you will have to go to work on Monday. That's the bottom line, yeah. that's right. And, and uh, <laughs> going back to Bill Clinton's statement about the potential for life having been found on Mars, it did actually prove to be a very useful statement because they used it in the movie Contact. Yeah, <laughs> so his, sta his statement was used um, to demonstrate the reaction to the world to the discovery of intelligent life beyond Earth. So it was very cleverly sort of slotted into the yeah. film. It's great, great yeah. movie. Really love it. Yeah. Mm, thank you, Lance. Great question. Great fun trying to sort that one out. But I think we've reached a point where uh, finding microbial life will sort of yeah, okay, well, we knew it was there, and yeah. that was that. But intelligent life, that could be a different ball game. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to leave it there. Fred, thank you so much. It's always great fun. Good fun, Andrew, and I uh, look forward to the next time. Indeed. And don't forget the Space Nuts shop at bytes.com slash space nuts where you'll find uh, all caps and mugs and polo shirts and T-shirts and stickers and books. There's a new one out today, apparently. That we've... <laughs> Got a funny name. I was, I was going to mention it, but uh, you've done it for me. <laughs> yes, never let a chance go by. Now, tell us again what it's called, Andrew. The Tyrannian Enigma. Ah, what a name. I love yeah. the Enigma bit. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Yeah. Yes. Thanks, Fred. See you next week. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. You'll be back next week, and so will I, Andrew Dunkley, bidding you farewell by my book, and <laughs> we'll catch you on the next edition of Space Nuts. Thank <laughs> you.